Hey, it's Rebecca. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind everyone to check out my new six-part investigative podcast, The Dropout. It is the fascinating story of Elizabeth Holmes. She was once the world's youngest female self-made billionaire, and now she's facing up to decades in prison for criminal charges to which she pleaded not guilty. So many of you have been writing to me about this, um, reaching out to me on Twitter and leaving us great reviews wherever you're listening to those podcasts. And we really, really appreciate it. This is one of the most interesting stories I've covered throughout the course of my career. It has also been a a long, long path to get here. We've been doing this, working on this for over three years. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Check it out now. Subscribe, rate, and review. The Dropout is available wherever you're listening to podcasts and new episodes come out every Wednesday. Here's this week's episode of No Limits. I have to tell you, like in the beginning, every person, we spoke to lots of venture capitalists, lots of partners, lots of smart people, and we, we told the idea to them. We told them about our customers. And they said, that sounds like a terrible idea. And then meanwhile, we're kind of having fun with the idea that this is now the greatest idea that's come out of HBS in 2014. And there are venture capitalists trying to give us money on a napkin. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, so on today's episode, would you give your car keys or your house keys to a total stranger? What about if they were doing all of your chores, buying groceries, picking up dry cleaning, tidying the house up? Well, the founders that you're about to meet are hoping that you will say yes to this question. Marcella Sapone and Jessica Beck are the co-founders of Hello Alfred. It's a company that provides an on-demand home manager assistant, which they call an Alfred. It's actually a nod to Batman, which you'll hear about in this conversation, to do the stuff that you don't want to do. So they founded the company in 2014 while attending Harvard Business School, despite the fact that they were told over and over again it was a terrible idea. Today, there are Alfreds in cities across the country that service more than 100,000 households. So how did they make their idea a reality? Here are Marcella Sapone and Jessica Beck to walk us through the steps. Marcella Sapone, welcome to No Limits. Hi, I'm excited and to be here. We're so excited to have you and your partner, your co-founder, Jessica Beck. Welcome to No Limits. A pleasure to be here. So the two of you founded Hello Alfred four years ago now, about four years ago. What originally drew you to the idea? What was the ideation phase for the two of you? Were you thinking, we've got to start something together? <laughs> it definitely started with us. So Jess and I went to business school with two goals. Goal number one, find a co-founder because you can't do anything good alone. So you went to business school specifically thinking, I'm going to start a business and I need to find a co-founder. That's right. And both of you went with that intention. I might have gone with a slightly different one, but I was easily <laughs> What convinced. was your intention, Jessica? <laughs> so I thought I was going to start a business. I wanted to have fun. Um, I thought I was going to start a business, but I thought I was going to be later. So I was looking to explore different areas and different ideas, but I ended up running into Marcella on the second day we were there. Cool. Okay, so you go in with a couple of intentions. Number one, find a co-founder because you can't do stuff alone. Number two, find a really good idea to work on. I just didn't know it would be this idea. Um, Jess took a napkin, actually it was a piece of paper, one day and drew a picture of a stick figure running around a building 
taking care of your Zappos boxes and your dry cleaning and your groceries and your returns and your flowers. And she said, I would really like to have this person in my life. So the idea is actually Jess's idea. So, okay, so when was this in the relationship? How early on did she have this idea? Uh, We had known each other for about three months. Three months, and you're, you know, sitting in a bar somewhere drawing stick figures. I love it. uh, Designing this idea. Yes, well, I would And what did you think? Were you immediately sold on it? No, it was like, this is the worst idea of all time. She told me it was a terrible idea. (laughs) Why did you think it was bad? It just sounded very hard, very complicated, and like a pie-in-the-sky idea, the idea of everybody having someone they could rely on for help. When you're having this initial conversation, what did you think were the most complicated parts of making it work? Well, we were doing something that was brand new in a lot of places. So the first part was we wanted to convince everyone to give us the key to their home. Yeah, that's hard. That seemed like hard. (laughs) The second thing we wanted to do is we didn't want to do one thing. We wanted to do a whole host of things, and we wanted to do everyday things you need a lot. So we wanted to do a lot of things instead of one. seemed hard. And we wanted to do it in a really human way. Technology was going to be important, but people were going to be really, really core to what we wanted to give someone else. And that's hard, but really, really worthwhile. Right. So it was hard in a lot of ways off the bat. And the other thing is, I also think it's a little crazy. But when I told Marcella is, why would we do something that wasn't a little crazy? I like that. And so how far from when you originally had this idea to when you actually founded the company? How long was the time distance between those two things? So we were the first Alfreds in the company. And we started doing it about four months later. Four months? That was quick. It was fast. And was the thinking, hey, we have to try this and see if it works. And if if it works, if if people are interested in us showing up in their homes and doing these things, then they might be interested in others. I mean, we didn't believe that there was really a business there and that maybe this was something we wanted, but other people didn't. We didn't know how to execute it. We didn't know what the way to talk about it would be. So we just did lots and lots of experiments to try to convince ourselves that this was something we wanted to spend our time on. Which is so smart. What, what were some of the other experiments? So we had to problem, or we had to figure out if people would let us into their home. Um, did you go to strangers' homes initially? Yes. We started the business by putting postcards under people's doors in different neighborhoods in Boston at different price points, and people signed up. And we had people sign up for $20 a month, and they were students, and we had families sign up for $400 a month. And Jess and I knocked on their door and said, we will be your assistants. Tell us what we can do to take things off your plate and save you time. And what we were thinking is that the requests we would get would be very, very different and therefore not be something you could scale. And what we were shocked to find is that everybody is very similar. At the end of the day, we need to eat, have clean clothes, have a clean home. And it feels amazing to have someone take care of you. It changes your outlook on life. And so we would go to the grocery store once for everyone. We would pick up people's packages and drop them on their counter. We would go to the dry cleaner once for everyone and put the dry cleaning away in people's closets. And that started a routine and a habit of people having Alfred visit them every single week. And that's really how the company grew. And those early experiments and customers are still, in fact, our customers today. Wow. So we tried to cancel the business many times. There are lots of reasons why suddenly we were in business school and we were spending hours and hours and hours kind of going out there and doing these Alfred runs. So we reached out to our customers and said, I'm sorry, but we are going to have to shut down the business. We're to focus on business school. Everyone wrote back and said, we will pay you more. 
And these sometimes we had made mistakes. I mean, we left people's refrigerators open or, <laughs> uh, you know, like, well, how could you do that, Marcella? <laughs> <laughs> so some refrigerators don't have a really good grip. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but you learn lots lots of these little experiences really help you create a system for taking care of people and having a way that you move through the home to do that. And people, so you send out emails to people because you want to focus on school. And, and were you thinking at the time maybe there's a different idea we should pursue? I think we both recognized that there was an idea here, but it would be really challenging. And we were doing lots of, this, of these experiments. So another one was we made it optional for people to give us their keys on day one. By the end of a month, 70% of our customers had given us their keys. Wow. So from there, we started to make it not optional. If you wanted to be an Alfred member, you, you had to give us permission to enter your home. And that has been a core piece of our business ever since. And it is our competitive advantage. We are the only company in the world that delivers past the front door at scale. And it's based on relationships of trust that we have with our customers. So back to your original email where you're telling people, we have to shut this down. We just can't afford to do this and we need to live our lives. And they wrote back, actually, no, we'd love to pay you more money. How much more money were they willing to pay? (laughs) Well, it did vary a bit by who they were. So the student wasn't willing to pay $400, but they were willing to pay an extra 10. Um, The families and some of the more established people were willing to go up to at least another 200 or $300. And I think what was interesting about that wasn't actually the dollar value. It was people communicating with us, this is really, really important to my life, and I don't know if I can live without it. Were you calling yourself Hello Alfred back then? We had a lot of working names. <laughs> I wouldn't say many of them were very good. So we weren't Alfred at the time. Uh, but what we were looking for was a name that had a relationship that was someone you could call and that had the connotation of being built into your life like an Alfred. Um, so I don't recall the exact names we had, but I can tell you they probably weren't that good. Was Alfred because Alfred is the butler or something like that? Yeah. So uh, growing up, I had a Barbie dream house and I filled it with <laughs> Batman figurines Uh <laughs> Batman is my favorite superhero because he's the only superhero who, at the end of the day, is just like us. He's a human being, but through the help and organization of technology and his sidekick, Alfred, he becomes a superhero. And the idea is we want to do that for our members. I love it. That's intense, though. <laughs> I know. My parents had a handful. Really? Tell me about that. Were you were you interested in being an entrepreneur as a kid? I. Uh, Well, if you kind of break that down, for me, entrepreneurship is about building something from nothing, and it's about having imagination and trying to bring those ideas to life. And ever since I can remember, I've always been a kind of person who likes to imagine what things could be instead of what they are. So drawing a lot, being very creative, being in plays, being in improv, um, kind of just pushing myself. I actually was an introvert and I put myself in all of the most uncomfortable positions to try to teach myself to be an extrovert. And so again, creating a new version of myself, I think that is where self-improvement comes in. And I think when you have ideas that inspire other people and you can build them with a team, that really is what a definition of an entrepreneur is. So creator. Jessica, did you have a dream job as a kid? Yes. I wanted to be in the NBA. (laughs) But I'm I only five. Side note. Side note. <laughs> the side note is I'm five two, <laughs> and the WNBA didn't exist at the time. Um, but I think, I mean, for me, 
<laughs> did you play basketball or was it okay? Yes. I so at least you were playing basketball. It wasn't just like, <laughs> yeah, I think of all the things. It would be really great to be in the NBA. No, I was an avid basketball fan and um, player. Um, and I think for me, when I thought about what I wanted to do, it was really with people and team sports and basketball. And I played volleyball. Um, you know, that was really what it was about. So I always imagined working on things that were hard because I think hard things are worth doing and doing them with people and figuring out how do we create an experience, an environment where people can try a lot of things, fail, learn, and then really become the best version of themselves. And I think that starts in environments like sports or in school, but you can express it in so many other ways. So now, Marcella, you're the CEO. Jessica, you're the COO. Was it clear from the very beginning that the rules would be that way? So a lot of companies that start with two people um, start with this kind of like co-CEO mentality. And for Marcella and I, I think it's really important that we set the business up to be sustainable and grow and scale. And at the end of the day, that means two things. You can't have two decision makers. You actually have to have one. It sets the business up better. But we are partners. So we debate and we argue and we agree and we execute together, but we sent a signal super early on that we had a sense for the scale of what we wanted to build. And, you know, that the, I think it's a really great point, but I think that most people who, who walk in this room and most people who found companies don't begin that way. Mm. Do you think that there were fundamental differences in your personalities and your inclinations that, for example, make you, Jessica, a stronger COO and you, Marcella, a stronger CEO? You're shaking your heads. We're both shaking our heads, yes. Um, I think that there are uh, different styles of leadership. Jess is the best people manager I've ever seen. She inspires and teaches, and that creates an ability to really mobilize people around an idea. I think I'm good at articulating and imagining a different reality and can get people excited about that vision and also break it down into if we want to get there, what are the things we have to achieve today, tomorrow, in six months to make it really actually real? Um, We are kind of, it's not clear cut. I would say it's kind of like yin and yang. And there are things that Jess and I both can do. um, And in some ways, we sometimes swap roles and it's part of growing and learning. So sometimes I'm more externally facing and then I'll swap with Jess and I'll be more internally facing. I think it's just based on that partnership and being able to build a relationship with each other that's built on trust. And the stronger our relationship is, the stronger our relationships with our team and therefore our customers. And how do you handle it when there is a fundamental disagreement? Was that something you talked about early on about your friendship, about your relationship. Yes, and I think the thing is... You have to learn how to fight well. There's always going to be fundamental disagreements. <laughs> I mean, we no still matter fight. what you do. We how do you fight. guys fight? Uh, we do it out in the open in front of everybody. Uh, it, it The worst kind of fights are when we have very strong and polar opposite points of view, and they usually have to do with people and how to handle a difficult situation with someone who isn't necessarily treating our employees or our um, team in the way that we would like to. And Jess is an eternal diplomat, and I like to just stand up and leave the room. And we kind of gotten better at saying, here's what I believe and why, 
we might raise our voices a little bit and there might be a little bit of yelling. But by the end of, let's say, worse, call it an hour, we've arrived at some conclusion because we both know we're coming from a place of wanting to solve a problem together and that if you can get emotion out of it and just really start to see that energy as passion, that can be actually motivational. But you have to really try not to have these emotional responses and reactions. And I also think we've learned it's if we don't argue, we're not going to get to the best answer. Mm. Like we're going to bring different things to That's the table. True. Uh, we have a perspective. You know, we're building a different type of company. What it means to be CEO, COO, that is defined differently for us. So yeah. we actually need the both of us to get the best answer. And sometimes it's an argument and sometimes it's not. But I think that the two is the important And part. also, like, what do titles mean? We don't have a very strong belief that titles set people up for success because a title suggests this is your job. What your job is has to evolve. Jess and I fire ourselves from our jobs on a daily basis. We started as Alfreds. We did every job at the company, and we had to fire ourselves from every job at the company. So when you say that, you had to fire yourself, you basically mean you had to essentially hire somebody to take the role so that you could continue to move up and manage from a higher level. True, but sometimes it's to the side or down. Um because you really want to create a job that has growth trajectory in it as well. So you're kind of giving away a whole playground or part of your sandbox. And starting to say, I want to have people who are smarter than me in the room. I want people who are going to make decisions that are going to be different than the ones that I would, but I trust them to make them because they are in the context and they have experience. For me, like my no limits is no ego, no limits. I like that, by the way. Thanks for the <laughs> shout out to no limits. We really appreciate that. So let's go back to people are emailing you saying, we will pay you more for this service. So you obviously know that you're on to something. You have some conversation where you say, okay, let's proceed. Let's figure this out. What were the next steps that you took to really make this a real thing as opposed to you guys are testing in, in this sort of beta mode of, is this even a possibility? Well, so step one was firing ourselves from the Alfred job and trying to hire someone to do that who is motivated by caretaking for others. And we hired our very first employee, Jenny. She was a stay-at-home mom with a minivan, which was really important because we were in kind of the suburbs of Boston. And Jenny took the keys and the to-do list from all of our customers, and we created a way for her to do work efficiently. And we put together our very own version of technology that allowed us to create these to-do lists and really aggregate requests, send them to our vendors automatically so that Jenny could just go pick them up. So we started to build, and we continued to serve our customers to try to prove that once we got through their main to-do list that they wouldn't cancel because there are recurring needs that we have every single week. You need groceries in your fridge every single week. And that when we had things that happened that weren't great, that we could repair and actually use those moments to be trust-building moments. Um, so relationships with our customers instead of being kind of a transactional kind of brand. And eventually even that your Alfred could switch and that the relationship wasn't just with your Alfred, it was with the brand. And that we could systematize how we were serving our customers. So we had enough customers, and we took videos of our customers giving testimonial on what Alfred did for them, because at the end of the day, the idea of democratizing help is really abstract. Like, what does that mean? And we want to help you the way you need to be helped. And so hearing people's stories of, I am a new mom, I had to change my routine, I have to buy a lot of new things to get ready for the baby— 
There are things I need to get prepared every single week, and I'm going back to work four weeks after I have this baby. Help me. And we take needs and outcomes like that and break it down and say, what are the things we have to get done to make that possible? So you're not putting things in a shopping cart with us. You're asking for help. You're asking for outcomes in your life. We took that video. We shared it at a business competition at Harvard Business School. And despite having been told that we our idea was not good enough to be part of the entrepreneur, entrepreneurship program at HBS, we got on stage, we presented, we showed our customers, and we won that competition. Wow. Wait, who told you it wasn't good? <laughs> I feel, I mean, I really, we really enjoyed our time at HBS, so I don't want to... Well, was it a really high-level senior yeah, person? Yeah, it was uh, some professors who, um, at the time, were really looking over the entrepreneurship program at HBS. And I have to tell you, like, in the beginning, every person, we spoke to lots of venture capitalists, lots of partners, lots of smart people, and we, we told the idea to them. We told them about our customers, and they said, that sounds like a terrible idea. And again, it, we were telling ourselves, this is crazy. It won't work. So when you heard that, I mean, back to this point, because I think so much of the time, whether it's you're looking for a promotion, you're looking to switch jobs, you you're looking no. to start a company, you hear no, and you you hear from people, it's not, you know, some idiot on the side of the street who doesn't know yeah. anything. In many cases, the gatekeepers, the people who do appear to have the experience are the ones telling you, you know, cut bait. This is not the right step. So how are you taking that in? Were you thinking we should refine this? Were you thinking this isn't going to work? Hear more from Marcella and Jessica after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash no limits. That's Indeed.com slash no limits. How are you taking that in? Were you thinking we should refine this? Were you thinking this isn't going to work? I mean, I think it's two things. The first is we had to had we had to have conviction. So we had done so much work to test and learn to this point that we knew there was something there that whether other people said it, there was something there didn't matter to us. The second thing was everyone has a good point. So it's like, okay, what's the gem there? Like, what can we learn? How can we actually refine? We made a giant list. We did make a giant list. We made a giant list of every piece of feedback and pushback and question and concern. And we worked through that list until we had a good answer for ourselves, which meant that when it came time to answer questions about the business in front of venture capitalists at that business competition, we had thoughtful answers on which we had conviction and clarity on. And I like Jessica, the diplomat, who says, everyone has a good point. Wow. (laughs) Everyone? Maybe not everyone. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So you win this business competition. Yeah. And then what happens? So we win the business competition. And now word is starting to spread that there's a service out there that will come to your house while you're not there and help you with all of your to-dos. So we get an inbound amount of customers and we start actually building out the foundations of the business and what becomes for us Alfred Academy, which is how we hire and train and recruit our team or our technology. And then meanwhile, after that competition, a few of the judges for that competition took us out to dinner and they were venture capitalists and they tried to write us a term sheet on a napkin. Mm -hmm. And we said, wait a second, we had been told this was a terrible idea, right? So we're just we're kind of having fun with the idea that this is now the greatest idea that's come out of HBS in 2014. 
And there are venture capitalists trying to give us money on a napkin. So Jess and I say, well, why don't we actually go talk to a bunch of different teams? And if we're going to take venture money, because that's not where we started, we thought about how could we build this business to be profitable and uh, sustainable from day one, that we didn't need to take capital. But if venture capitalists are interested, let's go talk to them and see how they can really help and see if there are any partners that will help us get this idea out to more people. And so that's what we did. We flew to San Francisco. We updated our competition deck and we spoke to maybe 15 different teams. And then we flew back to New York. We spoke to one more venture capitalist who was in Boston and he didn't let us leave the room. And he said, I know you have other term sheets. I want to work with you. And here's why. I support long-term thinking in passionate founders who are going to change the world. That investor was Bijan Sabay at Spark Capital, and he was the first investor in Twitter and the first investor in Tumblr. And in our idea, he saw the technology piece come to life in an offline way, and he was excited about taking that next step in how he thought about building companies. Sounds like a great investor that you would want to have on your side. But I can imagine that that after you had spoken to a number of companies, everyone is interested in you at this point. That is not an e that is not as straightforward as it sounds in hindsight. Well, Jess, talk a little bit about what pushback we got on the West coast. So we're on our tour in San Francisco And there's kind of two types of characters that we're speaking with. There are some early seed funds, and they actually were very open-minded. They saw the merit behind the idea. Uh, And then we went and we spoke with a handful of venture capital funds, which typically around the table um, are a bunch of white men. Nothing wrong with white men, but a bunch of them. And a lot of the pushback we got was, this seems like what my wife does. <laughs> like, this doesn't, nobody needs this she thing. She loves to do this. <laughs> nobody needs this. Um, explain it to me again. And there was kind of a does not compute moment that undermined kind of the actual value and suggested just a particular, you know, set of folks. Another piece of it, this is the beginning of Uber for everything. So Uber is growing at rapid speeds. You're getting Instacart and Ship and a whole bunch of on-demand services getting a ton of funding. And that whole model, that sharing economy model, is built on the idea of getting on-demand independent contractors to fulfill requests. And we believed from day one that we needed to have employees, W-2 employees who would be ambassadors and agents of the company. Remember, these guys are going to go inside people's homes. Trust. And so we had a model, and in a footnote, it showed the salary per hour, but it said we're giving benefits, and they're W-2. Oh, yeah. And a few venture capitalists found that footnote and said, if you change that small footnote, then we'd really love to invest. And so that helped us really eliminate a lot of folks who didn't understand that this is a human-centric business and that technology companies in today's era need to be human-centered. So you get your funding. You work with Bijan. And Spark Capital. And what are the first areas, I'm assuming um, personnel, people, are one of the biggest things that you invest in early on. Um, How much, what was the first round? So we we did a $12 million Series A round. So $12 million, and at this point it had been all of your money and friends and family? 
we, we had about $2 million that we started with. And then three months later, we won TechCrunch Disrupt. We were the first females to win that in San Francisco. And that added another 10 to the pot. Gotcha. Okay, so you've got the money now. You need to invest in people. How do you scale from there? So we went back to the foundations, which was sort of building brick by building brick. So it was, who are the Alfreds that we need and want to hire, and how can we actually do that? Who are the folks that are going to help us build out our first technology stack? Who are the folks that are going to do some of this marketing? But for us, because we had spent a year doing every job, we kind of knew who the first Alfreds had to be. We kind of knew what the first marketing messaging had to be. We had a sense for what the first technology stack had to be. So finding and deploying that first team, um, I think we had a leg up on because we had done all of those jobs. Yes, makes a lot of sense. And so you go out, you hire, you start scaling. What was the first what have we done moment? <laughs> Daily. <laughs> <laughs> today, earlier yeah. today. Yeah. 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 But t- tell me some of like the really big things that came up early on where if you could go back and and rethink that, you, you would. We're stumped. Um, I think in the beginning we were – being told at our board meetings, worry about profit, pro- profitability later. And for us, it was, again, really important to be profitable from day one. Again, this was like 2014 when yeah. all these companies that were just scale, 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 taking yeah. as many new customers as you can and figure out the money part later. Yeah. And so the metrics we were kind of holding the team to were how many members did we have, how quickly was that growing, and how much value were, were they getting on our platform? How much were they spending on the platform? And that was a lot like what Uber did. They were just looking at their bookings and their market share. And you're not really looking at the full picture. Um, And so while we were still profitable, we really took off the focus of really thinking about things with the positive and the negative. And that changed kind of the culture of the company a little bit. And I would say that we've grown into a place where we care most about the trust that we have with our members. So the feedback score that we get every week is by far the most important metric. Um, another is really paying attention to the rate of change instead of the absolute number of customers that you have, because that rate of change suggests your ability to scale and your ability to learn as a company and as a team. And so getting into the habit of talking about what we were learning and changing how we were doing things was something we were really good at when we were just 12 people. When we started to get around 40 and 50 people, there wasn't a lot of reflection happening. And so our rate of change and how fast we were growing started to be flatter than we had seen in the early days. So sometimes it's going back to the beginnings and going back to the things that you started with on day one and making sure that they are strong in the current team and that they play out in new ways. One of the things that you raised earlier, this idea that you're going to hire your employees with W-2s. You're going to give them benefits. You're going to pay them a, a decent salary. Yeah. It the, the challenge in that, the you know, part of the reason maybe the venture capitalist was pushing back is the challenge in that is that then the cost of the service becomes right. more expensive. And there's, I would say, more talk today than maybe there was two or three years ago around the idea that a lot of venture-backed companies are essentially companies that service the wealthy and people who have the ability to consume those those types of products. How do you think about that in your business, especially as you talk about scale and wanting to be something that 
perhaps anyone could access? That's a great question. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the first way that I think about that is we are creating something that is real work and is meaningful jobs. And that means we get the opportunity and the honor to employ people. Um, it increased costs in a particular way, but in many ways, if you're a long-term business, it is much more cost-effective. So one of the examples that I would give is if you look at a on-demand economy company like Uber, they spend a lot of time trying to get drivers. They have a ton of turnover. For us, we don't. Mm. And there's a lot of benefits that we get from that, which makes it much easier for us to actually share across our team and keep the cost of what we do very, very moderate for what we but provide. But these are ideas that we had that we were not sure about. So to your question, Rebecca, I mean, really every day we were challenged and we were thinking back to, I think this is a bad idea. I think we could be wrong because suddenly our our burn and our payroll was so high and our ability to actually turn on memberships, we had 100,000 signups in New York City, but we couldn't afford to hire enough Alfreds to service those members. And getting the economics right, finding the right price point, it's just lots of little experiments on a daily basis, and that hasn't changed. But another thing is like your own energy and motivation as you're trying to build the business, as you're trying to recruit people, as you're trying to get out there and tell your customers about what you can do. Every single week, Jess and I came home to our own Alfred service. So we've been using the service for the last three and a half years. And there are some Fridays, which is my service day, that I came home and said, wow, this is bad. This <laughs> yeah. is really bad. And it's so de- demoralizing because you've spent your whole week working 70, 80 hours trying to build something, and then you're disappointed yourself. So part of it is like managing your own psychology and then again kind of removing the emotion and saying, okay, what went wrong here and how can we fix this somewhere upstream? And when you had those 100,000 people in New York saying, we want your service, but you didn't have the people to fulfill that, what did you do? Well, we said no to certain customers and we left them on a wait list. And we said, um, if you can get more folks in your neighborhood and in your billing to sign up, that will help us have density. The more density we have, our ability to serve you and your neighbors on the same day allows us to have a sustainable run. When we have a sustainable run, we can then afford a full-time employee because you're not losing money as you serve people. So thinking about each employee, if we offered them a job, we wanted to ensure that they could have that job for as long as they were able to do it rather than kind of making a bet. And how do you make sure because trust is so fundamental to this whole thing. And now, you know, I I cover business and technology for ABC and and Amazon has rolled out a service where they now come into your home um, and and drop some things off. Walmart is playing around with dropping off groceries in, in people's homes. So how do you make sure that that person is dependable, reliable, and not going to, I mean, one person, one bad person, one video that goes all over the internet, people are saying, hello, Alfred, you can't trust that company. And that's a big debt for your business. So I think relationships are about trust. Uh, Or sorry, I think trust is about relationships. Um, And for us, we know that. So when you become an Alfred customer, we actually force you to meet your Alfred and begin building a relationship because dependability, reliability, the ability to come in the front door of your home on a repeat basis is something that's earned, not given. 
And there's no amount of cameras or sensors or, um, you know, you name it that will replace that. So I think part of it is actually recognizing that we are in the relationship business and designing for that. And then another thing is we do more deeply vetted background checks than anyone in the industry. And we've gotten really good at vetting people. We have six different stages of processing whether or not this person is going to be a long-term success at our company. And then we we do background checks on an ongoing basis. But again, it's not about tracking people. It's not about it's, it's not about surveillance. It's about building trust with your employees, building trust with your customers, and that is the community that you're building. You know, at the end of the day, we actually think about it as being safer. And for us, seeing people like Amazon and Walmart follow our lead is actually amazing and awesome. It's the same as Airbnb creating a new category and you have lots of other companies trying to take pieces of the market. But what those folks are doing is opening the door and putting a box down. And it's not the same. In our business, we have people who are your home managers who walk around your home, who put things away where they need to be put away and observe, and they're detectives. They keep things perfectly in stock. So you're always going to have X number of diapers. You're always going to have four toilet paper rolls. You're always, (laughs) you know, the milk is always going to be in the fridge. And you can start to stop thinking about those essentials and have them perfectly in stock, automatically, and it's just humming in the background of your life. It's a different experience. And how many um, Alfreds do you now have? We have over 200 employees at the company. We are currently um, operating in 11 markets, and we'll have over 100,000 members by year end. Wow, congratulations. And what's the end game for you? (laughs) You said it. That's why we're both looking at you. Um, The way we're scaling today is trying to make Alfred a utility. So it is free to use. We work with buildings. And if you live in an Alfred building, this service is free for you to use. So we're scaling through these building relationships. Our objective is to grow around those buildings and make it accessible to as many people, especially in urban environments, as possible. So it's about growing, growing fast, and building our community. And that makes sense, the concierge service, the, the fact, you know, the idea that if buildings are ultimately your customer, then you you deal with, you don't have to go out and deal with every single person. You deal directly with the building. You also create scale in a single location, which really simplifies and makes more seamless the actual job of the Alfred. Um, and, and also it, it really probably helps you think future term too as far as cash flow and how much hiring decisions you need to make so that was that always the thinking or has that evolved as you've seen what works and what doesn't with the business so that napkin that Jess drew on day one was an uh, was a stick figure running around a building and that is because Jess is from New York City all I knew were buildings (laughs) (laughs) so we've always been aspiring to get there but you had to build trust with relationships with the buildings and show that you were getting better results in terms of higher rents lower churn lower costs and most importantly that you were designing residential experiences that people expect today that the technology and service in the building is at par with the services that people expect today and to your point about where is the end state what's the end goal 85% of Americans are going to live in cities by 2050, 85%. So the future is urban, and we allow urban communities to be healthier, to be connected. We bring local services into the home. We create jobs, and I am really proud of how we've built our business and want to bring it to as many cities as possible. You both have backgrounds in consulting. What's been the biggest 
failure along the way for you career-wise? Well, I would say that there's a lot of different, I mean, there's a lot of failure along the way. So I'll tell a story from the really, really early days. Um, when we started the company, uh, we were students first year. And over the summer was when we began testing Alfred and building Alfred. And at the end of that summer, we decided we weren't going to go back to school. And I filled out a piece of paper. It turns out it's very easy to drop out of school. You just fill out a piece of paper and you sign your name. <laughs> After you've spent, like, all this time preparing to go and taking tests and filling out exactly. forms. Yeah. And I remember I called my mom and I said, Mom, I'm not going back to school. And you would have thought that World War III broke out. And I don't think she talked to me for a good month. Um, so you encounter things like this all along the way where people tell you it's a terrible idea. You take a risk and everyone looks at you like you're crazy. And at the time, that feels like extreme failure. In many ways, it is and it was. Um, but obviously, that's what it takes to go to the next level and the next level and the next level. I mean, for me, when I when you think about early careers, Jess and I actually very similar on paper. We both worked at McKinsey. We didn't know each other there. But then I went on to work in private equity, where we were working with companies and really acting as operators and partners to them. And so the skill sets you're getting in these jobs are all about apprenticeship around people who know how to solve really hard problems, who know how to influence outcomes, how to motivate people, and help teams break through glass ceilings. But that's a very kind of strategic role. And for me and for Jess, we both craved actually doing the work and being real operators. And so working in finance, I got closer to that because you were responsible for the whole company strategy and you were, we were embedded in the teams, but it still wasn't real. So it goes back to business school being that incubator for us to find someone to work with and find an idea to work on to solve the problems that were most important to, to us. And just to clarify, you did not drop out. We ultimately ended up getting a degree, but we did actually drop out. So you left, we left. but they gave you a degree. Thank you, HBS. <laughs> uh, how was that negotiated? Just a story for another time. Okay. Um, <laughs> toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? It's a sprint, not a marathon. Mm. Think about a person running a marathon. They get to the end. They're exhausted. They, they pass out. They can't do anything. We were running things like it was a marathon. You have to run things like a sprint. You have a clear goal. It's a little bit ahead of you. You get ready. You run as hard as possible, and then you stop and recover. You take a break. You put some time. You take a moment to breathe. You find a new goal, and then you run another sprint. So finding that time to recover. I mean, Elon Musk just said he thinks that people who want to change the world have to work 80, 90, 100 hours. I think it's probably true that you need to really be focused and be working hard, but I don't think it's 100 hours because if you don't spend time recovering and getting yourself ready, you're doing bad work. You're doing sloppy work. You're not as efficient as possible. And by the way, if you are not thinking as a full human being and having personal aspirations, then what's the point? Trusting your gut. The truth is we in many ways kind of know the answer in our core. And when you're doing something for the first time or people are more experienced or people want to give you advice, you listen to them. You would be silly not to. And by and large, 
at the end of the day, if you look at what you should have done, you knew the answer on day one. And I think that comes back to building conviction, having clarity, persisting in the face of people saying this is not a good idea or that's a person you should hire and knowing what's really genuinely important for what the business needs and what you need personally and then following that. So speaking of that advice and trusting your gut, what's the worst advice you've received? People don't scale. What does that mean? So when we started the company and we said we wanted to hire W-2 employees, um, people said, first of all, you're not a tech company. And we said, we're a tech company. We're a human company, too. And then they said, well, people don't scale. And that could not be farther from the truth. What that suggests is that people look at a P&L and they see people as an expense. For us, people are an asset. And it means you have to invest in people, set them up to be successful, give them the tools they need. If you look at all of the companies that have changed how we live and work, they're huge. There are thousands of people in them. And that's because people are the only thing that scale. Marcella? I said it earlier. Worry about profitability later. That is dumb advice. If you don't have a business that makes sense on day one, you don't have a business. I agree. (laughs) Um, Finally, uh, what's the craziest thing someone has asked their Alfred to do? (laughs) But my personal favorite is about a friend and a new mom who was sending a piece of fruit every few weeks to symbolize the baby growing. So it starts out with grapes, <laughs> then an apple, like the then bump a grapefruit. The bump tells you what fruit your baby <laughs> yeah, but is. But we did it in real life. <laughs> like actual watermelons went through the mail. <laughs> to this new mom. Yeah. Or the mom-to-be. To the mom-to-be. Wow. I don't think I would have wanted that. <laughs> did they make it there fresh? Did the person eat the fruit? That we can't speak to, but we know they got there and that they were beautifully delivered. (laughs) That's very thoughtful. Uh, Really appreciated this conversation. Jessica and Marcella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you for having us. Okay, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur was nominated by Grace Joyle. She is Sashi Chandran. She's the founder of Tea Drops. Here's Sashi to tell you more. Hi, my name's Sashi Chandran. I'm founder and CEO of Tea Drops. We make an assortment of bagless, organic, dissolvable teas here in Los Angeles. One big challenge I face as an entrepreneur is that I'm actually really introverted, and I've had to force myself to be more extroverted in sharing my story and sharing my ideas and pitching to investors or buyers. And I've done that by just putting myself in really uncomfortable situations by joining a group called Toastmasters that forces you to speak in public and always signing up to either pitch at an event or speak at an event. Um, Because I think, you know, things like that, it's like building a muscle. And over time, you get more and more comfortable being in a social setting and crafting and sharing your story. And that's really helped me over time. Congratulations, Sashi. Wishing you continued success. Grace, thank you so much for the nomination. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Sashi and how she created her company. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an Entrepreneur of the Week, send me those nominations or you can send me your career questions as well to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. 
Finally, before we go, a shout out to the wonderful team here that helps make this happen each week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.